Hello, welcome to The Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Allie Burgess. And I'm Neha Anand. In today's episode, we'll learn more from our fellow medical students, Rohan and Terrence, about the buzz surrounding COVID-19's lasting effects on our immune systems. How does the immune system work, and what do we know about how it reacts to coronavirus? What does this mean for a vaccine? Keep listening to find out. But first, let's break down some recent headlines. So in late August, the CDC announced a new high-dose flu shot aimed at providing better protection to adults 65 years and older. This vaccine will target four strains rather than the usual three. And actually, it will contain four times the usual dose. How much of a difference does a higher dose make? That's a really good question. So I actually read a New England Journal article published in 2014 before the craziness of the pandemic began, where about 30,000 participants that were 65 years and older received either the high dose or standard dose vaccine. And the article compared the relative efficacy of the two. And the results showed that the high dose induced a significantly higher antibody response and provided better protection against influenza that was 24% more effective than the standard dose. That's really interesting. So this new flu shot comes at a time when public health experts are urging everyone to make sure they get their flu shot this year, especially due to the fear of a twindemic. Oh my gosh, what is a twindemic? <laughs> so a twindemic refers to having both the flu and COVID-19 circulating this fall and winter. So flu activity usually begins to increase in October and peaks in January or February. And as you know, COVID-19 doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Yeah, that's the unfortunate truth. So in terms of the flu shot, as medical students, we're required to get the flu shot every year. But I'm curious if it's not required for people's workplaces, how many people actually do get the flu shot? That's a good question. So in the 2018 to 2019 flu season, when the vaccine was in relatively higher demand compared to previous years, still only 45% of adults and 63% of children in the U.S. received the shot. And for those that were 65 years or older, which is the group that has the highest risk of dying from the flu, only 68% received the vaccine. Wow, that's a lot of people missing the flu shot, especially in that elderly group that's more at high risk. This year, to combat a shortage in supply, the CDC actually purchased an extra 9.3 million doses for adults and 2 million flu shots for children. Speaking of children, another headline recently is that the Department of Health and Human Services issued an emergency rule to allow pharmacists to vaccinate children. Oh, so this is the flu shot or other vaccines? So it's more than the flu shot, actually. It's for other vaccines as well. And that's because according to the World Health Organization and UNICEF, childhood vaccination rates have been declining all around the world. In the U.S., the declines of vaccinations began in the spring when lockdowns disrupted access to pediatric care. And though the rates of vaccinations seem to now be improving, they're still lower than usual in at least 20 states. Wow, that's scary, especially now that um, there are certain preventable diseases like measles that children will be more at risk for. Yeah, exactly. This decline in vaccinations is really worrisome for potential infectious outbreaks, like you said, that could be completely preventable, and especially as schools and daycares may be reopening around the country. 
So is this reopening why the Department of Health and Human Services issued the emergency rule? Yeah, I, I guess it could be related to that. And while it's applauded by a lot of pharmacists, the American Academy of Pediatrics says it really doesn't address the fears that families have of bringing their kids to their pediatrician during this pandemic. So I guess we'll have to see whether this really helps um, increase vaccination rates. Yeah, it sounds like it's definitely a multifactorial problem that won't be um, really changed by one policy. So we've been talking a lot about vaccines And vaccinations, as a general idea, are built upon the basic concepts of how the immune system works, which we'll hear more about later in the episode. But did you know that vaccines were first employed in China as early as the 11th century uh, using smallpox inoculation? Oh, I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah, so more widely known is the work of Edward Jenner, who successfully used cowpox material in 1798 immunity to smallpox, and this quickly made the vaccination practice widespread, leading to eventual eradication of smallpox and application to other diseases. Oh, wow. So it seems like vaccines have been around for a while to combat infectious diseases. Let's now transition to Rohan and Terrence, who will walk us through how the immune system works and how this is important for creating a vaccine for COVID-19. Hi, my name is Terrence, and I'm here with Rohan. We're medical students at Johns Hopkins. Today, we're going to break down the immune system and COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic isn't going away, and we're still trying to answer questions such as, what happens in our bodies after we get COVID-19? Can we get COVID-19 more than once? And what's going on with the COVID-19 vaccine? While we may not know the answers, we do know that an understanding of your body's immune system can help you understand the answers once they do come out. After today's episode, we hope you will learn more about how our immune system protects us from infections and how vaccines affect our immune system and could possibly help us overcome the COVID-19 pandemic. So germs are all around us. Many things can make us sick, but how come we aren't sick all the time? We have this invisible defense mechanism built into our body that works around the clock called the immune system. Let's dive into what exactly the immune system does for us. The immune system serves three main functions. The first function is to continuously monitor the body for infections. To do this, the immune cells constantly comb through the substances found in our tissues, looking for any foreign material that may have come from a bacteria, virus, or something else that doesn't belong. This is an infection. The immune cells can also look for signs of healthy cells that have become infected and are behaving strangely. So what happens if the immune system finds a foreign material or an infected cell? Well, once it finds evidence of an infection, the immune system goes on high alert. It's almost as if an alarm has gone off. More immune cells are recruited to the site of the infection, which causes inflammatory symptoms, which we commonly feel as swelling, tenderness, and warmth. In the case of more widespread infections, one gets a fever, which doesn't feel great, but it helps immune cells function better. The immune system also works to clear the infection by trapping and digesting the infectious agents and safely killing infected cells to prevent damage to surrounding tissue. This is the immune system's second function. Wow, that's fascinating. How does the immune system 
protect us from getting the same sicknesses more than once. Once an infection is cleared, the last job of the immune system is to keep some form of memory of the infection so that if one gets exposed to the same germ or pathogen again, the immune system will be faster and stronger. As a result, a subsequent infection can be cleared relatively easily, which means fewer to no symptoms, and more quickly, which means less time that one can transmit the disease. It's as if the immune system remembers the pathogen so that it can be more ready the next time the germ infects the body. We would then say that this person is immune to the disease. Today, almost all children can become immune to diseases like measles and chickenpox, which is also known as varicella, through vaccination. But before these vaccines were widely available, young children would only become immune to these diseases after contracting them once. However, there are diseases that we do not become immune to. For example, other diseases like the flu have several strains which are different enough that the immune system may not recognize it based on a prior infection with the flu. Thus, it's recommended to get a flu vaccine annually. So it's really interesting how some vaccines vary in terms of how successful they are in getting the immune system to remember the, the immunological profile of a particular disease. That's right. Immunity, or more precisely, immunological memory, can be conferred via two major mechanisms. The two mechanisms involve the B and the T cells, also referred to as B and T lymphocytes, and they are the major players of the adaptive immune system. B cells are best known for their ability to produce antibodies which are Y-shaped substances, actually proteins, that are released by the B cell. As B cells develop, they randomize the part of their genetic code that is responsible for generating antibodies. As a result, each B cell produces a unique antibody, which combines with a specific antigen, like a key to a lock. An antigen is like a foreign object that enters the body, such as a virus. When a B cell's antibody binds to an antigen, the B cell becomes activated, which causes it to rapidly divide into hundreds of thousands of copies of itself. However, these offspring B cells do not randomize their antibodies entirely, but rather make small adjustments to try and improve the fit between the key and its lock. These antibodies can label pathogens so that other immune cells can kill them later which is called opsonization. It's as if the label tells other immune cells, hey, this is something bad, please kill it when you get here. Antibodies can also directly prevent a pathogen from invading by attaching to an important part of its surface. This is called neutralization. After an infection is cleared, most of the newly formed B cells will die, but some will specialize into memory B cells, which can live for much longer and they help to survey for any recurrent infection. For many diseases, like hepatitis B, we can actually check for antibodies in a patient's serum to see if a patient has immunity, whether they got it from a prior infection or from a vaccine. So we've heard a lot of talk about antibodies recently with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
scientists have been investigating if patients who have COVID-19 develop antibodies and if we can possibly use these antibodies to treat other COVID patients. Yep, there has been a lot of buzz around antibodies. Current evidence suggests that the majority of COVID-19 patients produce antibodies against the causative virus, namely SARS-CoV-2. Seroconversion, which is the time point when antibodies become detectable in a patient's blood, takes place two weeks after symptoms onset, on average. Six days after seroconversion, antibody levels reach their highest values and plateau. In asymptomatic patients, the B-cell response is generally weaker, with less patients seroconverting and antibody levels remaining lower across the board. That doesn't sound really good. Unfortunately, unlike the example of hepatitis B, antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 do not seem to last lifelong. In fact, antibody levels seem to decrease by around 75% between the acute phase of the disease and eight weeks after getting discharged from the hospital. This rate of decrease is true for both symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals across a similar time frame. Furthermore, 40% of asymptomatic individuals and 13% of symptomatic individuals become seronegative, meaning that they no longer have detectable antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 in their blood. Wow, so this actually suggests that the immunity with antibodies to COVID-19 doesn't last that long, especially in the case of asymptomatic infections. So it seems like this evidence is making it tricky to justify the use of immunity passports, an idea that was floated around by some government officials worldwide, where upon a person with a positive SARS-CoV-2 antibody test, could be given a pass to return to work and help restart the economy. Because antibodies are lost over time, a person could become infected again and spread the disease later on. This is not a completely unprecedented scenario, though as the two other coronaviruses known to cause epidemics in humans, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV, both exhibit limited antibody durations as well. Uh, the MERS antibodies last roughly only three years, and the SARS antibodies last roughly two years. Now, let's explore the other player involved in immunological memory, T cells. T cells work somewhat similarly to B cells. They possess a T cell receptor. A receptor is usually a protein stuck on the surface of a cell that has a location for substances to bind. The T cell receptor is analogous to the B cell's antibodies in that they are randomized for each T cell. This randomization allows for a quite impressive range of binding possibilities. However, one key difference between T and B cells is that the T cell receptor remains attached to the surface of the T cell, unlike antibodies, which are released into the bloodstream by the B cell. This makes it much more difficult to test for T cells compared to antibody tests, of which there are over 100 different commercialized tests available. Just like with B cells, when a T cell receptor interacts with a foreign antigen, the naive T cell becomes activated, causing it to rapidly divide into multiple copies, each expressing the same T cell receptor. T cells 
specialize into one of two main classes, namely that of the helper T-cell and the cytotoxic or killer T-cell. Helper T-cells help to orchestrate immune responses by releasing cytokines, which give instructions to other immune cells, including B-cells. Killer T-cells search for signs of infected cells and kill them, preventing those cells from being used by viruses to multiply themselves. And there are some interesting findings regarding T-cells and COVID-19 patients. Recent research has shown that patients who recovered from COVID-19 had both helper and killer T-cells against SARS-CoV-2 among both asymptomatic and symptomatic cases. T-cells were found even in some patients who were seronegative for COVID-19, meaning they had no detectable antibodies. Memory T-cells, which are analogous to the aforementioned memory B-cells, were found at comparable levels to those seen after vaccination for other vaccine-preventable diseases. Although only time will tell the significance of this result, it is promising, especially when taken in context with T-cell findings in other coronavirus diseases. Patients infected with SARS 17 years ago during the 2003 outbreak were found to carry T-cells against SARS-CoV-1 to this day. Interestingly enough, these T-cells were found to have some activity against the closely related SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19. In addition, T-cells that exhibited activity against SARS-CoV-2 were also found in patients that were exposed to neither SARS nor COVID-19. It is unclear exactly why these patients have SARS-CoV-2-specific T-cells, but one theory is that previous exposure to similar animal, animal coronaviruses, which do not infect humans, may have provided these people with T-cells, similarly to the case of the SARS patients. T-cells might be a more probable route compared to B-cells and antibodies through which we can become immune to COVID-19, but more research is needed to confirm this. Since antibodies alone are unlikely to help us end the coronavirus pandemic, Many of us are, I think, curious about buzzwords such as herd immunity and a COVID-19 vaccine. That's right. While herd immunity was discussed early on in the pandemic and even attempted to some extent in Sweden, it is unrealistic to expect that herd immunity to COVID-19 can be achieved through community transmission alone. Assuming a relatively conservative viral reproductive rate, or R0, of 2 and a mortality rate of 1%, herd immunity would be reached only after close to 4 billion cases with a staggering death toll of 40 million, which far outstrips the case and death counts seen to date. As a result, the discovery and widespread dissemination of a safe and effective vaccine will be needed to bring the COVID-19 pandemic to an end. At the moment, the two leading candidates for a COVID-19 vaccine are the Moderna mRNA-1273 vaccine and the Oxford-AstraZeneca CHAD-OX1-NCoV-19 vaccine. Both of these vaccines published phase one results in early July and are currently moving to phase three trials, 
with trials being expedited as much as safely possible in the interest of the public. The Moderna vaccine showed both an antibody and helper T response, as did the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. If the theory that T cells are responsible for long-term immunity to COVID-19 is true, then these early vaccine results are promising. However, it remains to be seen whether or not the immunological responses end up translating to immunity in practice. The phase three trials, which are randomized controlled trials that recruit large numbers on the order of tens of thousands of subjects, should serve to answer this next important question. Well, we hope we gave you a better understanding of the immune system and how it relates to COVID-19 patients and vaccinations. We'll be keeping a lookout as more news about a potential vaccine comes out. The leading companies expect one to be ready by late 2020 or early 2021. As we continue to live through this pandemic, remember that you can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 by wearing a mask in public, washing your hands frequently, and staying six feet apart from others. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast.